Isaiah 52, verse 13. C. My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, now, the prophets. Um, So we're going to look, um, God willing, three talks about the prophets. And I want to do um, one overview of a whole book, God willing, that will be on Wednesday. One little incident about a prophet that's tucked away in the book of Kings and a not-so-familiar prophet. But today I want to look at this one chapter from Isaiah. Alec Mateer um, says of Isaiah that he reckons that he was the king's physician 
which is interesting. It's well known that he was aristocratic. He, he moved in these sort of royal circles. But he says, when Hezekiah was ill, do you remember Isaiah came and told him what to do, etc.? And he reckons that um, Isaiah was the king's physician. Well, we have this great book, the book of Isaiah. There's no way in which you can give an overview of it in a... In, 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 <coughs> we'll, we'll, we'll lie, ten minutes, okay? Uh, so there's no, no way in which we can do that. But I'm going to look at this one chapter. And... In doing so, very deliberately, I've gone for this chapter because I think we're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to get all sorts of ideas, some very quirky, you wait till you hear Paul, and uh, some really unusual ideas, which are very interesting about communicating the gospel. And we're going to hear about God's work in the past, etc. It's going to be a thrilling time, but it is all about Jesus, isn't it? It's all about the fact that he's loved us, he's died for us, he's borne our sin, he's risen from the dead. He's our saviour. He's the one we love. He's the one we, we serve. So I thought, right, let's go to the, the very foundation of it all, to this one chapter. And, and I think rightly, starting at chapter 52, verse 13, maybe the chapter division's not quite in the right place here. Um, this is the most quoted chapter in the New Testament of all the Old Testament chapters. This is the one that is more quoted than any other. It's the fourth of what we call Isaiah's servant songs. And it contains... Five stanzas. So each stanza has got three verses and there are five lots of these and we're going to, to look at them. Now it's a key chapter in the sense that um, it really is focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know that's controversial if you're witnessing to some Jewish people. But it's interesting that until the 12th century AD, Jewish scholars all accepted that this chapter was about the coming Messiah. And then for whatever reason, and it may have been expedience just to try and answer the Christians who were speaking about Christ from it, they began to describe it not as speaking about a person, but about the nation of Israel. But actually, when you go through the chapter, there's no way in which this chapter is talking about a nation. How could Israel as a nation die for the sins of Israel, which we get in verse 8? How can you declare Israel to be innocent of all sin and therefore suffering unjustly, which you get in verse 9? Now, this is clearly speaking about an individual. And again, just by way of background, but I think you'll probably all know this, Hebrew poetry is usually in pairs. So you get an expression of something and then it's repeated in a slightly different way so that the second line extends or completes or sometimes puts a completely different spin on it, but it's towards the same truth, uh, the thought of the first line. And you get that all the way through this particular chapter. In, in, in this one chapter, there are 24 parallels altogether. And the central one, right at the heart of it, is he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And, and interestingly, in this one chapter, we're going to go through it bit by bit in a moment, but in this one chapter, you get the ideas of majesty, and power alongside humiliation and suffering and weakness. And, and try and imagine how a Jewish reader today reads it, or certainly before the 12th century, or before the time of Christ. They must have read this and thought, this is so paradoxical. It, it just doesn't make sense. How, how come you get 
power and majesty with weakness and humiliation and so it doesn't seem to tie together but of course we as Christians know this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ so let's have a look at it in detail the first stanza verses 13 to 15 and I'm going to give this the title that the servant is presented Isaiah the prophet is presenting to us the servant and as he is presented, we see, sorry, I'm going to work through in the New King James. If yours is slightly different, you'll be able to, I'm sure, understand where I'm coming from. The, 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 he's presented and the people are astonished by what they're seeing. They're startled by him. Verse 14, his appearance. Just as many were astonished at, at, at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What is this about? His appearance, it's a bruised one. He's been, well, we know, slapped and spat upon. And he's been beaten on the head with fists. Remember, this is the Lord Jesus. He's presented and they're astonished. The one who's been scourged. His back is like a ploughed up field with furrows in it, Isaiah says in another place. But then, yes, okay, they're astonished by this, but then there's this exaltation as well in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So he's presented as somebody who's, who's deeply suffering and yet he's exalted. And in verse 15, we, we get the message of this man. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings, shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. So he's presented again in a paradoxical way. This is Jesus, the suffering servant, exalted to such a position that those who have natural authority in the world, as it were, just are stunned by what they're seeing. He's presented. And then, in the next three verses, chapter 53, verses 1 to 3, the servant is profaned. And we come now to the, the beginnings of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The arm of the Lord, verse 1. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a person. And he is revealed to people. And he is very precious to those of us who believe. Now, how does he become precious to us? Well, it's through faith. God has revealed himself generally to humanity. And he's done it, as you know, in many ways. But actually, that revelation becomes personal to us through faith in this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the individual condition by which the, the general perfected revelation becomes a revelation not just to them, but to me. And then we have this person growing up, and he's like a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. No form or comeliness, no beauty in him that we should desire him. 
I think one of the costs of being an evangelist or an evangelistic worker is the cost of loneliness. Now, I'm sure there are many other professions, and who knows, in pastoral work, in eldership work, etc., that may be part of the price they pay as well. But certainly as an evangelist, there are times of loneliness. In fact, you can be in a big crowd and feel immensely lonely, can't you? And... Um, Sometimes, you've, you know, there's been the buzz of a meeting. You've been speaking out. You've been witnessing there. And, da, 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 and people have come and talked to you. Or maybe come and argued with you. And there's been all this banter. And I don't know about you, but then you get in the car. car you close the door. And an in, intense sense of loneliness can overcome you. But here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is lonely. His was a lifetime of solitude. You see, Mary pondering things about the baby Jesus in her heart. But did she understand? When Jesus grew up in that home with Mary and Joseph and then brothers and sisters, did they understand? We know that James didn't at one stage. Eventually, of course, he, he was converted. But did they understand? The, the, the boys and girls at school or the synagogue or in, just in, in, in the town, did they understand the loneliness of it all? And, and when he went into the wilderness for 40 days, and, and, and there were animals around, wild animals, and Satan was certainly prowling. The sense of loneliness, he's the one who's at one with his father. And yet there are human needs, aren't there? It's not good that man should dwell alone. But Jesus was alone. And even towards the end of his ministry, when his disciples still are not understanding who he is and why he's come, the, the loneliness. Of course, ultimately, it was going to be in, in the deepest way that, well, it's beyond our imagination and our understanding. Hanging on a cross and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What loneliness is that? As Jesus goes into his sufferings, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. As he comes out of his sufferings, he prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But in the midst of his sufferings, he can't even speak to his Father as his Father. It is, my God, my God. As the sin of the world was laid on Jesus... The father turns away from his darling son and in a way we cannot understand. Somehow the triune God, somehow the son is cut off from his father who has purer eyes than to even look on sin and Jesus is carrying sin on himself. The intensity of loneliness. And if disciples are not to be above their masters, then if we're following the Lord Jesus, there will be times of loneliness, but never in the way that Jesus experienced. We are never, never, never alone. Um, Dr. Helen Rosevere, the missionary doctor to the Belgium Congo, who died a year last September, I think it was, a year last December, sorry. Um, the last time I went to see her was was on in Easter, well, a year, it's nearly two years ago now, isn't it? Um, and she was in a, a care home and she was 
She was lying there and could hardly speak at all. And I sat with her, I don't know, for half an hour or so, and I tried to talk, but there was no response. And eventually I, I prayed and I was saying goodbye to her, and she just whispered this, I'll never forget this. She just said, Roger, he's with us. He's always with us. And that was all the conversation I had from her point of view. But wow, he is always with us. So we never experience the loneliness that the Lord Jesus experienced. He is always with us. He was forsaken by his father so that we might be forgiven and never forsaken by our father. Now that is worth remembering because, well, some of you have been pastors or are pastors, but... um, when you go and see somebody who's really chronically ill or dying and the weakness and the suffering that they're going through, if they are the Lord's, he is with them. He is with them, despite everything that's going on. But Jesus, utterly alone, absolutely solitary, but he was dying the death that he died so that we need never be alone. Interestingly, part of the pain of we as Christians wanting to share our faith that we experience is exhibited in a much greater way in the Lord Jesus. Because if you really want to bless somebody, it hurts all the more if that blessing is, as it were, flung back in your face, if it's rejected. If you're not bothered, well, you're not bothered. But if you long, just long for this person to be converted, you long for this person to be drawn near to Christ, and they say no, that hurts all the more. Here is the Lord Jesus. And didn't he experience this? Those words that he cried, he prayed over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets. You've stoned them, you've martyred them. I I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. I don't know whether you read um, J.C. Ryle's um, daily readings. Have you got them on the bookstall, Tom? How much are you selling them for? Let's say 12. Okay, 10 pounds. And um, uh, just just before the Christmas reading, there's um, about December 22 or something like this, there's a reading from J.C. Ryle, and he talks about Jerusalem. And um, he says, you know, it was the wickedest place on all the earth at that time. They'd killed the prophets. They were going to crucify him. And he goes through it all. And yet he loved them. Isn't that amazing? And he longed for them. Well, to have blessing rejected is very, very painful. Jesus saw as nobody else ever saw. And he loved as nobody else ever loved. And he saw the distress of humanity and longed for them. And yet... And here he is now, the servant being profaned. He's growing up as a tender plant, a root out of dry ground. No form or comeliness. When we see him, there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. He's despised. Jesus, despite the creator, the life giver, the the saviour, the friend of sinners, he's despised and he's rejected. And then a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Can you imagine that? And then the third, the central stanza. Verses 4 to 6. The servant here is punished. 
in these three verses, there's a sort of accumulation, a building up of expressions of suffering. And they're all sort of crowded in to these verses individually. If it was just one word, we think, this is terrible. But it's one after the other. Grief. Grief is incredibly painful. I have a friend in Germany and... Um, his mother died suddenly a couple of weeks ago and I've talked to him once or twice on the phone. He said, I have never, never experienced pain like this. And I remember when my mother died, I'd never experienced the pain of grief like I, I did when my mother died. I, I didn't know that that sort of pain uh, could be felt. But this is Jesus. He's, he's grieving. Uh, sorrows. He's wounded. These aren't just little scratches. They're deep wounds. He's bruised because he's been beaten and abused by people. He, he's smitten. Of course, he's smitten of God as well. He's chastised. The stripes. And of course, the deepest sufferings of all. We know it. We're familiar with it. We preach it. But that he bore our sins in his own body on that tree. Now, the thing about sin is that we are so accustomed to it. You know, we, we think wrong and we hardly think about it. We speak things wrong with it. Oh, that's just how we are. We do things that are wrong. We, yeah, we regret them, but we just do them. And, but sin, totally anathema to the Lord Jesus. He's never learned to accept or excuse or tolerate sin. It is absolutely abhorrent to him, the Holy Son of God. And yet, the sin of the world was laid on him. So the vilest things that humanity has ever done, all scooped up and laid on Jesus. But then the sins which I sort of feel are quite respectable, and I'm, yeah, I do them, and everybody else does, but anathema to him and all laid on him. Now, it didn't contaminate him in any way, but he takes this crushing load of sin on himself. Isaiah is saying, look at this one. He's a servant. He's been punished. And his punishment is more than ever, ever we, we can bear. I've been, I've got my newsletter over there, and I'm, I've, for the first time ever in my life, I, um, I'm recommending a secular film. Um, since I've been a Christian, I think I've been to the cinema four times. And twice were last year, on two successive days, I went back to say the, see the same film a second time. And it's the promise. It's the story of the Armenian genocide. And I don't want to spoil the story. You, you really should watch it. But um, uh, it's, it's a story about the Armenian genocide. And... Uh, uh, there's, there's, there's one incident which is so unjust and so dreadful that in front of a little girl, a girl's mother is shot. And it's just because she's weak, that's why. I, and, and everything within me sort of, ah, it feels so cross, so, ah, that cannot be right. And yet Jesus is taking this from millions and it's on him. He has to be God, by the way, to be able to take such a crushing load on himself. I'm, um, I know I look much younger, but I am 67. And if all my 67 years of sin were compressed into three hours and put back on me, I think I would explode. I couldn't cope with it. The sense of guilt, my conscience accusing me, the, the, the wretchedness, the heaviness of heart sometimes that you feel because of your sin. If, if it was all compressed into three hours, I just couldn't cope. But Jesus, not just my sin, 
the billions and billions of acts of rebellion all laid on him and he carries it. He has to be God to be able to take such a load on himself. The sin of the world laid on him. Now, of course, this is, as you well know, but it's in fulfillment to all that the, 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 the Jewish people knew in their religious system. An innocent animal would be sacrificed. The innocent one would lay down its life for the guilty one. Of course, the big difference between, say, an innocent lamb dying and the Savior, the Lamb of God dying, is he dies willingly. They were taken and they were, they were sacrificed. Jesus was wounded as one who is being pierced by a sharp sword is wounded. Jesus was bruised as one who is, as it were, being stoned to death is bruised. And our sins were laid on him. Not only laid on him, but he carried them away. Do you remember the scapegoat and the idea of the scapegoat taking the sin of the nation away? Well, Jesus didn't just take the sin of the nation away, but the sin of the world from the beginning to the end of time. He felt the weight of the affliction and the horror of sin on himself and he carries it. And just one other interesting thing about the Lord Jesus and his death in this way is that, you know, we, we sometimes hear, say, the Grenfell Towers, uh, all these people caught up in this, this widespread calamity, whatever it is, the, the hotel in Afghanistan over the weekend and so many killed, so many injured, etc. But the thing about Jesus is he is the only victim in this calamity. And who is this? Well, it's the Lord of all glory. And then we come to the fourth stanza, verses 7 to 9. And I'll give this the title, The Servant is Passive. He is the Lamb. 24 times in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as the Lamb. The one who was belittled in life is now going to be brutalized in death. I suppose it's right to say that you wouldn't ever expect a servant in those days to answer back to his or her master. You, you submit to the master. Now here is the Lord Jesus Christ being tried. And did he speak? Well, there was basically silence, except that silence was broken on the occasion when if he continued to be silent, he would have been disowning his own kingship. And so he speaks, but otherwise, silently. He hears all the accusations. Can, can you imagine, you know, you've got hundreds, maybe thousands out there crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Can you imagine if that was us? And who are these people? Well, maybe some had been healed of their blindness or their deafness or their muteness or their lameness or their leprosy. Maybe some had been fed with loaves and fishes. Maybe some had been influenced by his teaching. Certainly you'd expect that many of them would have known somebody who had been and they're all crucified. What a, what a picture of human hatred towards the God who has created us. But he embraces the cross. He embraced the cross because he loved his father and wanted to do his father's will. 
And he loved us and wanted to be our saviour. I, I just think it's, it's totally stunning. He was going to be cut off. Like, like you fell a tree. Or like um, Solomon took that baby and was going to have it all, the soldier cut it in half. He was cut off, severed the relationship between him and the Father and the Spirit. It's interesting, it's not until verse 9, so we've read all of this from verse 13 of chapter 52 all the way through to verse 9, and this is the first time we're going to read about his death. It's a grim word, his death. Again, we're used to the concept of death. We know that people die. We've heard this month of people who've died. We know that one day we will die, but he is the life. He's the life giver, and he is going to give himself over to death. And some of you have heard me say this before, but I think it's a very helpful point. He's the only person in all of history who ever chose to die. Now, somebody can come back and say, oh, no, I know so-and-so who committed suicide. They chose to die. They didn't, you know. They chose when they would die and how they'd die and where they would die, yes. But if they hadn't taken their own lives, they would eventually have died, wouldn't they? But Jesus need never have died. He laid down his life for us. If you notice, it talks about him making his grave with the wicked in verse 9. And the word wicked is plural because there were two thieves on either side. He made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich, that singular, at his death, he was buried in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. Do you know for... Nearly 750 years, people would have read these words and must have thought they're just totally meaningless. What was Isaiah writing about? What, what on earth inspired him to say all of this? And then came the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And Isaiah wants us to take great, great note of what was happening. The passive one taken to be crucified. He dies, he bears our sin. Of course, he cries out, it is finished. So he had finished the work he was born to do. And I, I imagine the scene sometime afterwards when Joseph of Arimathea, this well-respected member of the, the, the council, the leadership, the religious leadership of the community, makes his way through the streets of Jerusalem. He, he, he passes the guard um, of, of the governor and he goes in to see Pontius Pilate this religious man now going before the, uh, the, the Roman authority. And amazingly, he, he asks, maybe he begs for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And strangely, amazingly, Pilate grants his request. I wonder if Pilate could have sat down rationally and thought about it. He perhaps would have come to a completely different conclusion. But God can work in the minds of people, even the people who don't recognize him or acknowledge him so that they make the decisions that God wants them to make. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. There's the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will, it says in the book of Proverbs. And Jesus, who submitted himself to death on a cross, is taken down. His body, his dead body, it wasn't, it wasn't a decaying body. You will not suffer your holy one to see corruption. But this dead corpse is taken and laid in the grave. And then we come to this final stanza, which is very different. This is the servant pleased 
the last three verses of Isaiah 53. So Jesus has died. Think, just think for a moment about what that means. Those lips which had spoken such wonderful words and had called Lazarus back to life. They're now still and silent. The head which had been anointed by Mary has had a crown of thorns on it. The eyes which wept over the city of Jerusalem are now closed. The hands that had blessed little children, yeah, nailed to a cross. And the feet that had walked on water, nailed to a cross. And the heart of compassion now just stops beating. He, he chose to die. He gave himself to death. I, I never like the expression that, um, that Jesus was killed. I know Peter at Pentecost said to the, the Jewish people who were listening to him that you killed Christ. They, they killed him in the sense that they were guilty of murder. Murder, there has to be what they call mens rea and actus rea, a guilty mind and a guilty action. So their intention was that he should be killed. And yes, they have him crucified. But actually, they couldn't take away his life. Do you remember in um, John's Gospel, chapter 2, Jesus, um, or John's Gospel, chapter 10, no one can take my life from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. So he went to the cross he carried our sin, he paid for it, he cried out, it is finished. And then he dismissed his spirit. He gave himself over to death. And he lay in that tomb. The mob, I, 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 they would have dispersed. I, I cannot imagine what a mob who've just seen Jesus crucified were talking about. Was there a sense of glee or, or tremendous regret? I have no idea. But it was distasteful altogether. They, they go their way. The, the Pharisees, I imagine, were very self-congratulatory. Sort of rubbing their hands. Good, we got him out of the way. Little realising what was going to happen. The Sadducees, they would breathe a sigh of relief as well. Right, good, that's done and dusted and that's finished. And the centurion, perhaps he went his way and made his official report. You know, let's submit the report as to what's happening. Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus... Again, you, you just cannot enter into her suffering, can you? Uh, I think perhaps the most painful bereavement is the loss of a child. But to see your child lost in these circumstances, she bows her head, she weeps, yes, but her heart so torn. The 11 disciples, where well, we know what happened to Judas and the others, like frightened sheep, they just scatter. But Joseph and Nicodemus, they go and ask for the body. And there it lays, three days, three nights in that tomb, cold, still, not corrupting. And then, gloriously, wonderfully, that body was raised from the dead. The stone rolled away, not so much to let out Jesus, but to let us look in and see grave clothes there. Yes, and, and wrappings around his head, wrapped, left separately, and so there's no Turin shroud here. They're separate wrappings. And, and he's risen. He's, he's alive and he's going to show himself repeatedly. Two people walking on the road to Emmaus. Two, two ladies, two, two disciples, ten disciples, uh, eleven disciples, a crowd of over 500 people. And, and he's going to say to them, look, touch me, see, does, 
Does a ghost have flesh and bones? As you see, I have, I think that's very significant, incidentally. Uh, a Jehovah's Witness recently said to me, ah, oh, flesh, because they don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I said, no, no, it can't, absolutely. But it doesn't say about the Lord Jesus that it was flesh and blood. His blood had been shed on the cross. He didn't regather his blood. He said, a ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you say, oh, you're just talking words, they said. Well, I said, words are very important. And, uh, you know, th- this, was, this was not a ghost. He bodily rose. He could eat. He could talk. He could walk. And yet, a body that could go through walls. Amazing. And, of course, he's going to meet with Peter and the others. And Well, I love the words he spoke to John in the book of Revelation. I became dead, but I am alive forevermore. But, you see, Isaiah is talking about the sort of sense of total... Not smug, but satisfaction as to what he has accomplished. In the last few verses of Isaiah chapter 53, we see the cross from God's point of view. Jesus is rewarded. He has his seed. He has his spiritual family. And here we are. We're part of the reward of Jesus that you've never thought of yourself as being his reward but you are he has bought you and me and we belong to him and that's why he came uh, on United Beach Missions and there's a stand there for them we go and have a look at them I, uh, I love the work of UBM they used to be a leader and I remember who would always trick us with questions but they were good questions and they stayed with me and I remember once we were peeling potatoes and, um, and he just said why did Jesus die and rise and revive so we all gave our answers I wonder what you'd say why did Jesus die and rise and revive? You know that we might go to heaven, that we might be forgiven. We gave all these answers. I'm sure they're all correct. And then he went to the book of Romans, I think chapter 14. For this reason, Jesus both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. In other words, see it from God's point of view. Why has Jesus gone through all of this? That he might be Lord. The judge has taken the place of the criminal and satisfied the just demands of the law. When Jesus died on the cross, he was satisfying his own justice. He wasn't satisfying Satan. He wasn't satisfying us. He was satisfying his own justice. He was paying the penalty that he says there must be. Because sin has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences are paid for non-eternal beings for eternity or an eternal one paying for a period of time either the finite suffers infinitely or the infinite one suffers for a finite length of time and that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did he's been rewarded so the one who was once despised and rejected and stricken and afflicted and wounded and sacrificed, the one who is the man of sorrows, the silent lamb of God, has become the conqueror. He's conquered the, the grave, the sin, death, and he's made a way whereby we can be reconciled to God. And throughout time, the servant sort of gazes on the results of his sufferings and is content I don't know whether that's quite the right word, but he's, he's, he's happy that he has borne our sufferings. The grief, if you want, has borne its fruit. 
Uh, and the glory does not die, but continues. And more and more and more people are added to the people of God. The grief is past. The glory continues. It's almost like, you know, in the seventh day of creation, God rested, didn't he? Well, now there is a victorious rest. Redemption uh, brings satisfaction to the servant who has suffered so much for our sake. Alec Matir, again, if I can quote him, he talks about Christ, the executor of salvation. He says, the Lamb's book of life is Jesus' prayer list. It's an interesting phrase and a lovely way of putting at it. He intercedes for us. So in all the preceding verses, there's not, there's not even a syllable about anything other than his sufferings and his death. But basically this chapter follows the course to the graveyard and then the consequences of Jesus' sufferings. So let's just look at it quickly again. He's led as a lamb to the slaughter. That's the central bit. Before that, we get, verse 4, our griefs. Verse 5, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our peace. And we get that we're healed. And verse 6, for us all. All that is about us. And then you get, he's led as a lamb to the slaughter. And then you get, in verse 8, my people, when you make my righteous servant he shall bear, verse 11. He was numbered. He bore our sin, verse 12. He made intercession. That's all about God. And Jesus has come, led as a lamb to the slaughter, so that you and I might be reconciled to God. I want to make two last points. One, uh, a practical one, but one just an interesting one. We might be able to find it later on. I should have given notice to see if we can find this picture. Vincent van Gogh was... Um, was born into a godly home. His father was a, an evangelical pastor, perhaps a bit more legalistic and strict than perhaps most of us would be. But nevertheless, he loved the Lord and he preached the gospel. And Vincent van Gogh, he was the second Vincent van Gogh, actually, in that family. The first one died in infancy. They had another child and they called him the same name. And we, we know about his life and all the rest. Interesting man altogether, because as far as I understand, he loved the Lord and he loved the gospel. He came and he worked as a young man in London. Every Sunday morning he went to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach. And he loved the preaching of Spurgeon. And in the evenings he used to go to the east end of London and in the open air he'd preach the gospel. And then um, Van Gogh felt that God was calling him to be an evangelist. So he went to a Bible college in Antwerp, now of course in Belgium. Unfortunately, it was a liberal college and his trust in the scriptures was being undermined very dramatically and he began to question things. He had a cousin who was married and they had a little child, but his cousin's husband died and he quite liked his cousin. And perhaps very unwisely, he very soon after she was widowed, he approached her and said, will you marry me? And she said no, but he pestered. And pestered until eventually he, his uncle said, you, you, you to leave her alone. But he was really dejected about this. He wanted this particular girl. And, and then tragically into his life came Paul Gauguin, who was a, a reprobate man, if ever there was one. And he introduced Van Gogh to the brothels of Antwerp and Brussels. And he lost everything. It all just crumbled away. Five years before he died, 
he painted a picture. We'll see if we can get it up on... Is there a screen? Yeah, there is a screen. Who is that? <laughs> Please, can we get it up straight away? <laughs> Nothing can be as bad as what's up there. But anyway, um, he painted a picture, and it's, it, I, I, I love it. It's so evocative. And it's called An Open Bible, A Book and a Candlestick. That's all it is. And the, the, the Bible is open. You have to look carefully... And at the top you see it's open at the book of Isaiah. And you look more carefully and in Roman numerals it's Isaiah 53. And, but all the print is a blur. And the candlestick, on the original, you can't usually see it on the reproductions, but on the original there's a whisper of smoke. The, the light has just gone out over the Bible. Actually, at the foot of the Bible is a book called La Joie de Vie, The Joy of Life. It was a banned erotic novel but it's well-thumbed, well-used. And what Van Gogh was saying is that that's what I read and the light went out on Isaiah 53, on the Gospel, on the Bible. We'll see if we can get it up there. This is a key, key chapter and how we respond to it in many ways sort of is symptomatic of where we are spiritually. If there's something within us that wants to just bow and say, Lord Jesus, did you really do all this for me? Surely that ought to be our attitude. If you loved me and bought me with your own blood, then Lord, the most reasonable response is for me to say everything that I have and am, want to be, I just, I just give over to you. I read a story about a United States soldier in the time of the Vietnam War and one of his close friends was shot. And so this particular soldier, facing the Viet Cong and the fire of the Viet Cong, crawled to try and get his friend and drag him back to safety. And he succeeded in doing that, but in so doing, he himself was shot and died. When the Vietnam War was over, the parents of the, the, the soldier who was killed felt they wanted to meet the rescued soldier just chat and you know see who it was that their son gave his life for and so they invited him to come and have a meal with them but he arrived and he was tipsy he'd been drinking and he behaved in a sort of arrogant bullshit disrespectful rude rude way when eventually um he left the wife the mother of the deceased soldier turned to her husband and said to think that our darling son had to die for him. And the Lord Jesus, he died for us. And therefore to live soberly and sacrificially with a servant heart to lay down our lives that his love might be spread abroad surely is the most reasonable response. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? And then I'll hand back to Martin.